Hi, this is Dr. McCole helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by Mark Sisson, a pioneer in the paleo movement, who is going to share with us some information about collagen and other assorted musings. So welcome and thank you for joining us today, Mark. Thanks for having me, Joe. Great to be here as always. Yeah, and you are actually in California now, but you have, like us, decided to move your company down to Florida for a variety of reasons. And you personally oh, for moved a variety of reasons. Yes. earlier this year. <laughs> Good move. Yeah, so I moved it. I moved, right, I moved in December of 2017. But um, so I'm back in Malibu today just because I have business back here every once in a while. And um, I just have to share with you that I'm, uh, I just had like my perfect sort of um, what I would call future retirement morning. I paddled on the ocean for an hour and then I went to the track and I did 200s. So I, I'm, I'm like totally stoked about what I've done so far today. If nothing else happens today past this interview, yeah. I'm good to go. Wow. So that was 200 meters or two, yeah. or two 100 yards? No, no, I, oh, I'm glad you, you asked that and I'm glad we cleared that up. Yeah. 200 meters. Yeah. So it okay. was six, six by six 200. Yeah. Uh, what are you running your 200s in? Oh, geez. Here we go. Um, 33 to you need to know. You need to know. 33 to 35, and then the last one was 32.16. Wow, you're still in pretty good shape. That's excellent. For for 65 years old, yeah, yeah, yeah I think so. Yeah, that's pretty darn good. Yeah. How often you do your and, that's, and, and, and by the way, that's after coming off an hour of hard paddling on the ocean. So yeah. I, not not that I want to give you any further disclaimers. I've already given my age and my <laughs> paddling disclaimer. <laughs> But that is, you know, you're a, you're a big exercise fan as, as well as am I, and, you know, basically been promoting that most of my life. Uh, but the, and you, I made the same mistakes you did. Uh, actually, you're senior to me by about a year. And uh, that is engaging in too much cardio. And now you're, you're doing, you do a little bit of cardio with the paddle boarding, but those, those uh, 200s you ran, that is a classic example of high intensity exercise. You know, and, and to take that point and develop it even a little bit further in the old days, and I know you did this as well, the workout was like run a 200, jog a 200, jog a quarter, mm -hmm. run a 200. And and that's a decent way to do it if you're training for marathoning and stuff like that. But if you're going to do true high-intensity stuff, it's actually beneficial to recover even more. And so wow. now what we do is we run a 200 and walk a 400 and then run a 200 and walk a 400. So you're trying wow. to recover enough in the recovery period to be able to really hit it hard again when you do the high intensity. Because, you know, I, I wrote about this in my book, uh, Primal Endurance. We talk about this mm -hmm. area we call the black hole of training, which is sort of too high not to be fully fat burning and aerobic, but too low in intensity to not develop strength and speed and power. So we, we kind of try to separate them and make the, the slow stuff Longer, slower, and easier, but much more fat burning to develop aerobic capacity. But then we make the intense stuff much more intense, faster, and shorter to develop the high end. And then they sort of meet in the middle once in a while when you do a tempo run. Or I, I happen to do it on the, you know, I do a, a life cycle ride in the gym once or twice a week where I'm, I'm right in that, in that zone where I combine those two ends. Of so... Um... Were you doing the 400 meter rest on today's 200? Yeah, just walk, walk a 400. Walk All right. Yep. And how, what do you think is the ideal frequency of doing that type of high intensity exercise? Once or twice oh, a week? Yeah, not, not twice a week. Just Maybe once? Just once a week, for sure. Because okay. this is the thing about high intensity stuff. If you do it right, you shouldn't be able to do it again. Within, uh, it's kind of like, like the jump up super slow. Yeah, well, it's, it's a sim similar concept, but but if you're doing um, really true high intensity stuff, you can you can do different modalities throughout mm -hmm. the week. But if you're going to be doing sprinting, um, if you do it right, you shouldn't be able you shouldn't be recovered in three days or four days, even if you're in your 20s, let alone if you're in your 50s, 60s, or 70s. Mm -hmm. So uh, I go back to my original primal blueprint exercise pyramid. You know, which is basically move around a lot at a low level of aerobic activity. Find ways to move your body without even counting calories, just getting the mm -hmm. just getting the movement in and burning fat. 
uh, lift heavy things. That means go to the gym and put your put your muscles under a load, which is a uh, uh, weight bearing activity that not only builds muscle but builds strength, builds power, uh, creates uh, bone density, which is huge for old people and women. And then sprint once a week. And the sprint once a week. And by the way, these these activities mimic human behavior for millions of years: migrating, moving, carrying loot. You know, moving around all day long, not sitting, not, you know, not not sitting in a sofa, not sitting in front of a computer typing. So lots of lots of low level movement, lifting heavy things. Our ancestors lifted heavy rocks or logs to build a to build a fort or climbed up to to a lookout or carried babies or carried a carcass back to camp. So lift heavy things. And then the sprint once a week comes from a life or death sort of scenario where you got to run for your life all out and get that pulse of, you know, certainly the adrenaline that epinephrine, norepinephrine blend there, but also the pulse of growth hormone and testosterone. So we're trying to mimic, you know, an ancestral behavior here. Uh, and our ancestors, they would never have thought like, oh, gotta get out, I gotta train hard today, and I gotta go, you know, expend energy. I gotta, I gotta go do my 200s today, and then I gotta do, you know, six by 800 on Thursday, and then do a tempo run on Saturday. So they obviously wanted to conserve energy as much as possible. Um, and so they were sort of forced into this really high intensity stuff where it was literally run for your life away from something or maybe run for your life to catch something that you were going to eat. Right. But it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a daily activity. So that's sort of the, the, the genesis of this whole thought process. So we say in the in the primal blueprint, print once every seven to 10 days. And by the way, Joe, as you're drinking your water there, we, we don't we don't even talk in terms of like that's you have to do run time. sprinting. Oh well, okay. <laughs> I got a late. I, I prefer tequila no, when I'm doing my pot. It's what, but uh, yeah, it's okay, Joe. It's okay <laughs> if it is. Um, uh, where was I going with that? Um, yeah. Anyway, it's just about a, it's it's a recovery kind of thing. So I'm wondering. You're fairly convinced of the science behind this, and. I suspect that most of the coaches for elite athletes, even Olympic caliber athletes, are, are not integrating this in their training program for the sprinters. I mean, they're giving them more than one workout every seven to ten days for high intensity. Is that your observation, or do you think yes, that's going to now? No, 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 no. I would say that when you are twenty something, when you're an elite uh, mm -hmm. world class sprinter, and you've got all this testosterone circulating in your in your body, um, you you, you know, you can do a little bit more work for sure. But what I do know absolutely for, for a fact is that a lot of these sprinters are spending a lot more time in the gym. For instance, one of the metrics for predicting speed or world-class speed is how many times your body weight you can uh, hex bar deadlift. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think the number is like 2.5 to 2.75 times your body weight. So wow, that's a lot female, of weight. No kidding. So you have some of these female Olympic uh, uh, sprinters who are hex, they might weigh 120 pounds and they're mm -hmm. deadlifting 350 to 400 pounds on a hex bar deadlift. Uh, that's a predictor of, of brute speed. That's also work that you do in the gym. Mm -hmm. That means that that's not a day that you're going to go to the track and, and put that power into actual practice mm -hmm. in your chosen profession. So there's a lot more time spent in, especially with sprinters in the weight room, uh, mm -hmm. developing raw power and then what we call MSP maximum sustained power. So the longer the event is, the more you have to sustain that raw power. So if you're, you know, if you're, if you're just a, a total, um, uh, you know, anaerobic athlete, glycolytic athlete doing, you know, 10 sec, well, just, you're just working on ATP alone for 10 seconds um that's one station of that power and strength but then all of a sudden you extend it out to a 200 or a 400 or an 800 now you have to kind of bring in other other aspects of that strength and power to apply it to your particular event and a lot of that stuff now is happening in the gym and uh you know it doesn't it doesn't require that a 400 meter runner put in 50 miles a week of running mm -hmm. just sure. if, if anything that would that would you know, tear that person down. I remember in, in the old days going to UCLA and being blown away by the, like the sprinters would be at the track, they'd show up 
in their warm-ups. They'd be having a great time. They'd be laughing and joking and stretching and warming up and joking some more and laughing some more and warming up some more. And then they might do 100 or 200. It might not even be 100. It might just be a, you know, a couple of starts, you know, right out of the blocks and nothing else. Yeah. And they'd rest. You know, and then they'd chat and joke a little bit more and have some more fun and stretch a little bit more. And then they might run a couple of 200s and then put their sweats on and go home. And they were, they were at the track for like two hours, mostly having a great time talking. Meanwhile, those of us who were the endurance athletes are slogging around the track, you know, watching all this jocularity and, and, and fun happening among the strength and sprinter athletes while we're just managing pain the whole time, you know, trying to get our, our, uh, our 10 miles of track runs in. So big, big difference. Crazy mistakes when you're, when you're younger. So I'm wondering, uh, do you do the hex bar deadlifts or are you doing straight bar? I do hex bar. Yeah. Hex bar? Yeah. Interesting. Now, I, you know. Do you think, I, how, I mean, much, I do, how much easier is a hex bar? Is like 10%, 15% easier? I mean, if you can do three plates on a regular deadlift, you could, you could easily do, th what, th three plates and another 30 pounds. And it's, yeah. Are you doing three plates on a, de on a regular deadlift, Joe? Yeah, a regular deadlift, yeah. I'm trying to work my way up, but uh, nice, nice. Yeah, um, yeah. No, it's 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 probably you're right. It's probably about ten percent easier. But the the difference, what a hex bar deadlift does, is sort of combines a weighted squat with a deadlift. You're you're more the the bar comes up through the center of you rather than in front of you. So I think that the the tendency to um, hurt yourself is less on a hex bar yeah. deadlift, especially when you're doing the the heavy weights. Do you put the handles on the top or the bottom? I'll put them on the top. Now, if I'm doing lightweights, I put them on the bottom. So if I'm if I'm warming up, then I'll start with them as far, as low as I can go. But then on the heavy stuff, I put the handles on the top. Okay. Are you up to four plates yet? Hell no. No. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's uh, no. I'm I'm basically I'm doing like 300 pounds, and that's like for me. You know, I'm trying to. I don't do uh, one rep. Uh, Max is on those anymore. I, I just, that's too much. Uh, like my weak links are my, my wrists and my shoulders on this uh -huh. uh, particular exercise. Well, so, that, um, go ahead. I was going to say that's a perfect segue into the next topic, which is collagen, which yeah. is uh, something, you know, you're, re you're really ahead of the curve on so much of this thing. I mean, you were really uh, the first person that helped me understand burning fat for fuel as a concept because it was really foreign and you introduced me to it. But also, uh, you were ahead of the curve with this collagen and really recognizing the importance of that for soft tissue injury and repair. So why don't you expand on it and maybe how you came to, to this understanding early, early on? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mean, how I came to it was uh, how I arrived. A lot of my epiphanies is I had a, a life crisis where I play, I play this game of ultimate Frisbee once a week, uh, every week for the last um, 15 years now. You still do it in South oh, Florida? Oh, I got a I got a great I got a great crowd in South Florida. Yeah. Oh, I, I mean, I hope none of my, my Malibu boys are watching because because the, the game in, in, in Florida is better than the game in Malibu. And I thought the game in Malibu was good. <laughs> um, but I started um, about five years ago, five and a half, maybe even six years ago now, I started to develop a severe Achilles tendinosis. So I'm mm. out, you know, when you play Ultimate Frisbee, it's a it's like one of the greatest games ever invented. It's a very fast-paced game, so it's got the sprint, the sprinting of say soccer, um, but it's uh, you know you're throwing a frisbee and catching it while you're running and and uh, and you're trying to if you're not on offense trying to catch it you're on defense trying to prevent someone else from catching it so there's lots of running to the end zone and sprinting to keep up with your man um, and it's it's a very fast-paced game and it requires a lot of agility a lot of side-to-side -side quick movement as well as raw speed six, seven, eight second bursts of speed down the field. And I found over a couple of years, my late 50s, uh, that I was starting to get this uh, real severe Achilles problems. I couldn't, I couldn't sprint. My Achilles were really tender. Uh, they were getting thick, thickened. Uh, and, it, and I went to see an orthopedic surgeon and the orthopedic guy said, well, you, you have a severe Achilles tendinosis. I go, well, what does that mean? He said, well, well it, you're screwed. Basically, you can't play your sport anymore. <laughs> and um, you know, a surgeon being what a surgeon is, um, this is, and this is one of the, you know, one of the brightest minds in the room in, in orthopedists in, uh, in Southern California said, 
well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take the back of your heel and we're going to slit it open and we're going <laughs> to scrape the Achilles down to the raw meat. Uh, we're going to pack it up in a cast for three months and then you'll do, you'll do nine months of rehab and you'll be 80, 85% of, of where you were. And I'm like, no, that's not, that's not going to happen, doc. <laughs> and as so often happens when I see orthopedists, I go back to my house and I go, Jesus, you know, there's something I was doing wrong here. And um, and I started to do the analysis and I thought, you know, here I am stressing my Achilles, which is attached to the calf. So I'm really stretching, stressing the calf, as you know, uh, and, and the plantar fascia and everything around it um, on a regular basis. And I'm not giving my body the raw materials it needs to recover from that stress. It is that simple. Uh, so the, if you look at the collagen-based um, um, tissue in the body, it's, it's tendons, it's ligaments, it's cartilage, it's fascia, it's connective tissue. It's all the stuff that really, it's all the stuff that goes wrong when you get old and injured, Joe. It's, you know, a muscle is pretty much an easy thing to fix. You can tear it, it'll either repair itself, or you can even go in and sew it back up and it'll be pretty, pretty darn good. And it'll respond to diet if you give it, um, you know, grass-fed meat and some healthy fats. Um, and what, whatnot, and some maybe some ketones. That muscle will come back pretty strong. But if you, but if you don't, the, the the raw materials that are required to rebuild collagen are a different. They're a different profile of amino acids. And while it sounds maybe too simplistic to break it down this way, the 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 amino acids that you get in collagen material that you get from animals are the same amino acids that get incorporated into into the body to be become this matrix of connective tissue that connects uh, uh, muscle uh, and ligaments to bone. And so you've got this area that you want to, and it's, by the way, it does not have much of a blood supply. So even if you say, well, I could get all these raw materials from the amino acids in the meat that I'm eating or in the protein drinks that I'm drinking, the reality is you can get some of those, but not in the quantities that you probably need. And particularly as you get older and particularly as you start stressing, these uh, tendons, ligaments, cartilage, and other connective tissue and fascia. So I, for myself, having done the analysis, I started supplementing 40 grams of collagen a day uh, from another, another vendor. And within four months, my Achilles were better. You know, and you and I could be talking today, Joe, and I could have these two scars on the back of my, on the back of my leg, and I'd be all pissed off about the surgery that I have that didn't quite you know, uh, uh, come out the way I was promised it would come out. But I'm here telling you that I just, I just got off the track where I ran 32 seconds for a 200 at age 65. And I don't even, I, that's the first time I've been to the track in probably six months. So it's not like I, I, I'm into that, into that phase uh, of training. It was just a friend was, was there today. So, so what does this mean? So what does this look like in terms of the science? Well, recently there was a very cool study. I think I sent it to you. I don't know if you had a chance to look at it, but they labeled these uh, collagen peptides in a, literally in a drink that was like a gelatin drink. And gelatin, if you talk about gelatin and you talk about collagen peptides, you talk about collagen bone broth, they're sort of the same, we're talking about the same peptides. We're talking about these glycine, uh, proline, hydroxyproline, some of these really specific amino acid, um, single uh, dipeptides, tripeptides that, that actually cross into the bloodstream as a unit and get incorporated into the body. So they labeled some of these, and then they did this interesting protocol where they had these guys do six minutes of intense jumping rope. Now, the reason they did that was if you can envision uh, an Achilles tendon, which is a coiled spring for the most part, you're keeping it coiled all the time when you're doing, uh, when you're doing um, uh, jumping rope, uh, and it doesn't have a blood supply. It's got like one-tenth the blood supply that the surrounding muscles have. But if you envision it as like a sponge, it's full of fluid. And every time you, you stress that piece of tissue, the fluid leaves and it tightens. And then as it relaxes, the fluid comes back into the sponge. And since they, they gave this collagen drink to these uh, subjects 15 minutes before the jump rope exercise, there, was, there, were, there were these collagen peptides in the bloodstream surrounding the tissue. And it got incorporated at like a little over two times normal uptake. That was kind of a fascinating uh, study to me that indicated that, you know, it, it, it's, it's, really, it's really happening as the way I envision it, that the body will take in, selectively take in these collagen peptides into these 
parts of the area that are being stressed, um, particularly if you don't have any other source of raw material in your diet. And if we look at how we've crafted our, our, our diet, even in the paleo world, I might even say especially in the paleo world, where you're eating you know, these choice cuts of meat, but you're not eating, you're not gnawing on the bones or the skin or the tendons or other nether parts of the animal. You're just eating the, the choice cuts of meat, meat and then throwing the rest away or, you know, whatever, giving it to the dog or making whatever. We don't make bone broth anymore. Uh, most of us don't. So, so we've had uh, decades of not having any of access to collagen. You remember when, when you were growing up, I'm sure your, your, your mom probably had Knox gelatin all around the house, right? You had, and she probably yes, took it for skin. Right, it was primarily for making jello. Correct, but, yeah. uh, and that, but that's gelatin. And that was, mm -hmm. so literally yeah. in, when you were a kid, we actually had access to some of these collagen peptides mm -hmm. through jello. And I know women took Knox gelatin for their skin and hair and nails. They knew that was a perfect use of this material. But you know, I haven't seen much Jello or gelatin in our in our circles for no. the last ten or ten or fifteen years. So we've there's almost like a half a generation or more that's gone without any collagen, and and I see it in in the sports arena in pro sports where a lot of these pro athletes, you know, are tearing they're tearing ACLs and MCLs and ligaments and tendons and, and all kinds of stuff. And I think uh, I, I'm going to have to say a lot of it's because their diet is so horrible to begin with, and then they don't take in supplementary supplemental collagen like I think would be probably wise on their on their part. Great. So <clears throat> there's not many <clears throat> people who are more sophisticated in their understanding of optimizing the paleo diet and ketosis. Uh, you've written very eloquently on that in the past. And I'm just wondering um, the uh, that's a lot of protein, 40 grams, but it's a special type of protein. As you mentioned, it's high in glycine proline, hydroxyproline, and relatively low in the branch chain amino acids, which is are the primary ones that stimulate mTOR and muscle uh, anabolism and building muscle. So I would think that those that level of protein has to be counted a little bit differently than a traditional protein, and, and you're not getting that, that stimulus as much. I'm what, glad you brought that up. Time? Yeah, because, well, first of all, when I was, now I do 20 grams a day. So 20 grams a day is sort of my maintenance. Mm -hmm. level um, of, of collagen. Um, and and you, you hit the nail on the head. So collagen is such a unique protein blend of amino acids that, and it's so specific to collagenous material in the body that it does not sustain life. So when, it, when you buy a collagen product and it says 10 grams per serving or 20 grams per serving of protein, because it is protein and it mm -hmm. has to say protein on it, when you look at the supplement facts panel on the back, it's 0% of the daily value. In other words, mm. you cannot sustain life. And interestingly, if you remember back in the 80s, there was this liquid protein diet that was all the rage. You remember mm. that? And oh, sure. It, and it was a 500 calorie a day protein where you just, uh, yeah. uh, a program where you Meta just fast, drank. Optifast, or two of the big ones. All that stuff, and you just drank liquid protein. Well, guess where the liquid protein came from? Collagen. It was collagen. <laughs> it was collagen, and so, People were taking in what they thought was 500 grams of calories in the form of protein on a daily basis, but because it was collagen, it was not enough to sustain life. And people literally died on this diet. Of They had congestive heart failure, they had all, all sorts of arrhythmias and things like that because it was not the right kind of protein to build no. muscle. But if they were, weren't doing it as long, they probably got healthy because they were maximizing autophagy. Bingo. They were no. So that's the good news, bad news. The bad news is you could have died. The good news is if you didn't die, like in a niche, sort of a Nietzsche kind of uh, thing, if it didn't kill you, it made you stronger, yeah, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of people, you know, wound up having great skin, hair, and nails and didn't get <laughs> and lost some weight. But uh, yeah. So that was that was the uh, the upshot of that. Um, anyway, so it was an interesting concept that that. You, that even the World Health Organization, uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture, and the FDA say you can't you can't live on uh, on collagen protein, and they're basically acknowledging that if you eat collagen protein, it's, you're doing it for skin, hair, nails, uh, tendons, ligaments, connective tissue, bones, fascia. There are a lot of a lot of structural components in our body that are well served by doing a daily dose of some form of collagen. That's also why bone broth has become all the rage in the health food circles in the last five years. There are now, I'm going to say, 40 
commercial bone broth companies. It's not because bone broth is particularly great tasting or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. Uh, it's just a great, it's been a great source of collagen. But I'm wondering if we could dive deeper into collagen because as I understand, there's about 20 different collagen proteins and th- at least a few primary sources of collagen, which would be fish, uh, beef, of course, and chicken. So yep. um, can you expand on that and, and you know, yeah, the benefits so, you know, and differences there's, between, there's, between there's, them? Uh, Sure. There's type one, type two, type three collagen are the, are the primary ones. Um, you know, bovine uh, source collagen, probably the, the basic element. It's probably covering 80% of the bases. Um, these are, uh, they are different sources of different blends of pe- collagen peptides. And so some of them are higher in proline, some are higher in glycine, some are higher in, in hydroxyproline, but they all have kind of the same, they all have the same sorts of diantri peptides, just at relatively different levels and different amounts. So I don't really get into the weeds too much on put it, make, like putting together a product that has type 1, type 2, type 3. Um, and then we have hyaluronic acid, which is another factor in, in, in some of these um, detailed products. Um, I'm just basically saying, you know, I, if I'm going to cover 80% of, of your needs, with a 100% grass-fed, naturally derived bovine source of type one and part and, and a little bit of type two collagen, I'm going to suggest that that I've covered, you know, 80% or 85 or 90% of your needs. The rest, you know, are just sort of splitting hairs. So that's kind of how I feel about all the okay. different type one, type two stuff. Yeah, I like I mean, your I'm taking, perspective. You're very pragmatic. Yeah, I mean, I think that you know, like marine collagen uh, is a great product, and mm-hmm. and it's. We talk about you know sustainability or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, we can we can go into uh, more detailed discussions on that. But marine collagen, um, basically, you know, a similar similar amino acid profile, just di- relatively different amounts, but tends to mix better with water. Mm-hmm. Um, so if that's a um, if that's a benefit for you that it mixes a little bit easier with water, and you just want to use a spoon to mix it up, that's great. Costs twice as much. Is yeah. the is the twice as much expense. And it, by the way, it doesn't. It tastes a little bit less. I'm going to say gamey at at its basic level. Like our basic uh, collagen peptide, unflavored collagen peptide, tastes a little bit like collagen. Mm-hmm. Um, the vanilla tastes great. The chocolate yeah, tastes yeah. great. But the, but the plain, you know, tastes a little bit like collagen. I, I sort of want that taste, right? I want to know that it's that it hasn't been so refined that it's now like I can't tell whether I'm taking creatine or collagen. So that's that's all. I mean, it's there's a point at which, and I've been in the supplement business for 35 years now. There's a point at which you sort of have to, you know, weigh the pros and cons and say, okay, for the for the expense and for the benefits I'm delivering, what's the best product product that fits my market? Yeah. Well, let's go dive a little, little deeper because there is, uh, in my view, a, a rampant opportunity for essentially what appears to be fraud and and people who are purveying. Uh, collagen broths because there's a lot of them on the market and what is not disclosed in many in fact i suspect most is that the source of the collagen is coming from CAFO confined animal feeding operation yeah, yeah. animals raised in china full yeah. of heavy metals full yeah. of heavy metals so and they're they're not disclosing that and they're confusing not confusing they're they're misleading people and giving them a vastly inferior product. I mean, those getting those amino acids is loaded with other toxins that they shouldn't be getting. I'm wondering yeah. if you could uh, address that because it is a big sure. issue in this sure. industry. And no, I'm not I mean, I look, you, your product, but no, no, there no. are many others out there. Yeah. So here's here's a couple of things. First of all, yeah, I mean, the, the supplement industry is sort of, people say, well, it's not regulated. Well, it's definitely regulated. It's not policed well, right? So it's regulated, but not policed as well as, as we'd like. Um, except in California, where it is really yeah, well produced. Prop yeah. 65. So, so for instance, because I produce in California and I'm a California company in terms of this, the source of a lot of stuff we do, um, like the Prop 65 um, um, markers and the levels of detection are parts per, you know, it's one part per million of heavy metals. It's cadmium, lead, mercury, um, things like that. Arsenic. And so, yeah, arsenic, we, there's no way we could get away with one batch of an inferior product. So we test every single, we, we get a, we get called what's called a certificate of assay. So we buy from 
from some of the biggest, most reputable companies in this arena mm -hmm. who source product from either um, South America, where they're grass-fed 100%, or um, Germany, where the European Union and the Codex Alimentarius completely blows away any restrictions that the U.S. Department of Agriculture would ever put on, right? So we're, we've got that level of, of, um, of certification and detection to begin with. So we get a certificate of assay. Then we test every batch that we bring mm -hmm. in. So every every batch that we make, we have the manufacturer's uh, assurance, but then we test it before we before we put it in. So that's our uh, method of operation because and because it's because Prop sixty five is a it's a scary it's a scary yeah, thing that anybody. That's the way it should be done. You know, a lot yeah, of the average yeah. consumer doesn't realize that that many manufacturers are just relying on the raw materials supplying their certificate of analysis and not doing any independent objective third party. Uh, analysis yeah, to yeah. confirm that because a lot of the, there's a massive incentive for them to lie to, to to you. No, for sure, for sure. And if you don't, um, yeah, I mean, look, that's I, I've been in this industry, like I say, for like 35 years, and I've been yeah. designing product, and I and I know all the co-packers, and I know how to, you know, I know how this thing works. But but if you do it right, there's a thing called GMP, good manufacturing practice. So you have to you have to fulfill these obligations that your manufacturer imposes on him or herself, which includes receiving a certain way, quarantining the product until it's uh, blended, um, you know, doing an own, your own internal assay, uh, sending it out to an independent third party lab once it's been completed. Uh, all these steps are, you know, steps that we take. And then now, um, you know, I, t I talk with, um, I'm getting ready to do um, an NSF uh, certification for uh, USADA and WADA, the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency and WADA, which are certifications that not only are there no heavy metals, but there are no trace elements of anything that an athlete could get tagged for in terms of um, being disqualified for using a performance-enhancing substance. So there's a lot of lot of ways that you can, um, you know, craft your product so that it fits perfectly into that demographic. Having said that, I think that there was a uh, there was a piece on the internet probably a couple months ago exposing some companies. Uh, particularly in the chicken, in the chicken bone broth arena, for lots of heavy metals and uh, you know and, and that sort of thing. But um, you know, first of all, we don't do chicken. Second of all, we don't do we don't really do bone broth. Ours is hydrolyzed. That's one of the reasons you do peptides. It's hydrolyzed into a more uh, not only a more soluble uh, a product that mixes blends well with water, but also presents these peptide peptides in your digestive tract in a way that they're probably, they're likely not going to be cleaved by the uh, acidic environment of the stomach as much and they'll enter in, into the bloodstream in a, in a peptide form that the body's much more ready, willing, and able to take in. Are there different types of hydrolysis and does it matter what your raw starting material is? Like, it, is it matter if you just use bones or you put in some connective tissue or you put in cow hides, you know, does, does. Yeah. So, uh, it does. I mean, uh, so in the bovine industry, hides are the are the primary source of collagen. Um, bones are a, are a minor source of collagen. Connective tissue become a source of collagen, but hides happen to be the the primary source of, of collagen material in the in the bovine industry. In the fish, uh, the marine um, uh, peptide, you know, collagen peptide, it's um, it's bones and and skin, fish scales, and things like that. Uh, so it depends on the original animal source, and then even there it drills down into uh, the sort of better for you. Um, if you're going for collagen only, then you just primarily base, uh, base it on the hides. If you're going for a bone broth protein, for instance, uh, there's some companies that specialize in what they call bone broth protein. That's not a collagen peptide product, it's a bone broth protein product. And you'll see a couple of years ago, a couple of companies said, um, you know, beef protein isolate, for instance, right? And you think, wow, beef protein isolate, that's like, that's got to be better than whey. Because yeah, yeah. that's, you know, but but if you think about it, would you take a choice cut of grass-fed sirloin or tenderloin and do and powderize it when you could get 25 bucks a pound wet for selling it? So, so the beef protein isolate became literally taking all the nether parts of the cow after the butchering process and, and got put into a, a soup and got boiled down to a, a, a broth and spray dried into a protein. And I'm not suggesting that that's a bad thing. I'm just suggesting mm -hmm. that that's not exactly what we're talking about here when we're talking about 
um, uh, collagen peptides. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. So do you, do you think that there's a significant difference between the hydrolyzed cowhides and bone broth collagen? Yeah, I do. Or, yeah, I do. Bo bo yeah, from bone primarily. Yeah. Or hydrolyzed I bone. I don't know. You, I, I guess you can hydrolyze the bone too. You know, you can do you can you can do all that stuff. And again, it, the, what's the significant difference? You're probably getting a higher concentration of the of the appropriate peptides. If at least in my case, looking for um, uh, connective tissue support more than skin, hair, and nails, um, that's what I would go to. Now, it's interesting. Speaking of skin, hair, and nails, so the, bone, the, uh, the hydrolyzed bone would be better than the cowhide. No, no, no. I think the hydrolyzed cowhide's better. Oh, really? Okay. I do. Yeah. What's, yeah. The, what's the rationale for that? Uh, again, it's just, it just seems to be uh, a, a more, um, you know, just a, a better source of those particular peptides. Okay. Um, if, you're, if you're using collagen powders, yeah. uh, would you say what, what, so if, unless a consumer wanted to do an exhaustive third-party assay, are there simple parameters they can use, like just stirring it in water, see if it dissolves, smelling it, and tasting it? I mean, what would you recommend as a as a so strategy? so if you know what to if, right if you know what to what to smell and what to taste, absolutely. If you don't know what to smell and taste, um, you know, then you're sort of at the mercy of the marketing, uh, you know, or the label or whatever. But I mean, if it says hydrolyzed, you know, uh, uh, collagen, that's uh, you know they have to adhere to a standard that that's what that is. Uh, that doesn't guarantee the okay. the purity that you and I just talked about in terms of heavy metals, but it certainly sort of guarantees that they're they're theoretically if they're if they're fulfilling their obligations as a manufacturer with a label, then that's what it has to contain. Okay. Uh, but I like I, I look at the smell. I look at, at solubility isn't so isn't so much uh, a big issue for me. Um, I I don't mind something that you have to blend or or stir vigorously or stir into warm water versus cold water sometimes these things clump in cold water mm -hmm. that's not necessarily bad a bad sign okay great so um the the protocol that you've uh, established then is to initially build up the amount so maybe start with 40 grams or even more of the protein and then go and then that, work your way down to 20. so i'm just uh uh you know like an experimenter guy um I'm I'm the guy who just th throws a lot of stuff at it the first time. I remember Joe back in the um, late uh, early '80s uh, when I was starting to train for triathlons, um, and Linus Pauling was still um, considered uh, you know a leader in, in 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 a lot of fields. By the way, he still is in my mind. He still was so far ahead of the curve in a lot of things. But his his for instance, I'm just going to give you an anecdote. His uh, take vitamin C to bowel tolerance, right? was his uh was mm -hmm. his 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 main admonition and i'm like i was taking 25 grams of calcium ascorbate a day sometimes which wow. i think probably probably screwed me up that's a, a a bit much but that was bowel tolerance for me and i was training really hard and i didn't want to get sick so there you have it so when i went to the 40 grams a day i just thought to myself i'm just going to bathe my my achilles in this case in this raw material um, and I did it twice a day and, um, you know, and I got twice a day. No, 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 no. I did 20 grams, 20 grams twice a day for a total of 40 grams a day. And I didn't do 40 grams every day. Um, some days I only did the one if, cause I compliance has always been a big issue for me. So sometimes I forget the second, the second dose. Um, and I never felt like taking 40 grams at once was ever going to be any sort of a thing. I think there's a, you know, there's a rate limiter on how much you can absorb and, yeah, and, what, what do you uh, think that limit is for not necessarily collagen, but protein in general? You know, regular protein. Oh, geez. Twenty-five, I mean, thirty grams. Is based on your. Is it based on your total body mass? I mean, what would yeah, you? Well, what's I mean, the it, range you would say? I was personally, I'd say thirty grams. I'd say, grams? I'd say anybody, anybody, anybody taking in more than thirty grams of protein in a meal is probably, um, you know, you're going to lose that. that pro it's not like you're going to hurt yourself. Although, if you're talking, well, John. Okay. If, Kidney if you talk to Don Rosedale, yeah, talk to Don Rosedale, you're hurting yourself. But uh, Ron Rosedale, sorry, but um, but yeah, I mean, you could still have to deaminate the excess. Uh, some of it might, you know, be converted into um, into glu into glucose because uh, there's that whole gluconeogenic aspect of excess protein. So I think, and 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 also, you and I talked about this, but I I find that the that the daily requirement for protein, I used to think, you know, I had high protein requirements, and all of a sudden it's like, geez, I my daily protein requirements might be 50 to 75 grams a day. Yeah. 
Um, and I, I feel great doing that. So anything I eat beyond that isn't building more muscle, isn't causing me to burn more fat. It's just extra, it's just extra calories that, um, that the body has to figure out what to do with. Do I, do I, again, do I, uh, convert it to, to glucose and burn it? Do I convert it to glucose and store it as fat? Do I, do I, um, deaminate it and pee it out? Uh, do I keep it temporarily in the nebulous, uh, amino acid pool or sink that's in the body. Um, and so I look I, it's, in the last couple of years, as I've looked more and more into this whole protein thing, I don't, I don't even think in terms of meal to meal or even day to day, I sort of look at protein intake in three and four day clumps. It's like, if I get, you know, if I get 180 grams of protein over three days, I don't care how it came in, when it came in or whatever, that's enough to keep me going because the body is so efficient at recycling, particularly when you're fat adapted and keto adapted. It's so efficient at, at not um, feeling like it needs to dispose of that protein. Yeah, it's anyway. such a key thing. And you mentioned Ron Rosedale as a mentor of mine for many, many things. But, you know, I, I, I'm not sure I believe his stance on protein now because, you know, I ran into problems with following it to have a low protein all the time. And now I like 45 go, is his number. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll go below 40 for a few days a week, but then I'll go up to 60 or 70 on my strength training days. And I think you, you absolutely need to pulse it and you don't want to chronically suppress mTOR. You're just, you're just asking for trouble. You, you know, you're really, you're not going to be healthy. That's not no, the no, way no. it's designed to be. No, this is the thing, Joe, that as this, as these new ideas come into our, um, our, our cutting edge, you know, um, particularly in the internet where everyone's a guru and everyone's an expert, you know, mTOR enters and all of a sudden mTOR is a hugely bad thing for, and I'm like, no, mTOR is not a bad thing. mTOR is a reason that grow and babies grow and, and, and adults, you know, t teens get stronger and even adults get stronger on occasion. So it's really, it's, it's about the balance. Uh, and, and I see that happening as, as I know you do all throughout our industry, even with my, my, my recent foray into ketogenics. I, I don't like the word ketogenesis. I don't like the word because it connotes an excess of ketones in the, in the bloodstream. And so to think that you're going to have an excess of ketones in the bloodstream all the time for the rest of your life is ridiculous. It's not going to happen um, if you want to be so healthy. Just, bingo. So I talk about keto in the same breath that I talk about fat adapted and keto adapted, which means, and by the way, the term that I use is metabolic flexibility. We want to be able to burn fat when it's available on our plate. We want to burn fat when it's excess on our, uh, when there's no food available. We want to burn glycogen when it's in our muscles and there's none available. We want to burn uh, carbohydrate on our plates when it's, um, uh, you know, when it's available. Uh, glucose in the bloodstream. We want to burn ketones when there's no glucose. And at the very last resort, we want to burn amino acids because, you know, because that's a, it is a substrate in the, in the absence of all other substrates. But that, but metabolic flexibility means we've we've developed this internal combustion system that is equally adept at extracting calories from all these substrates, not just dependent on carbohydrate every three or four hours, which was the old paradigm, but certainly also not just adhering to a keto diet for the rest of your life with you know no more than twenty or thirty grams of carbs a day. Some people do that. God bless them. I couldn't do that because I like food too much. Yeah, I agree. I'm, I'm in your camp for sure. And uh, <clears throat> there's another benefit, and I'm not sure if you're aware of this yet, but I've been in, uh, in connection with one of Veach's primary assistants, so William Curtis, uh, who helps write his papers. And Veach is probably the premier guy in the world in ketones. Uh, he's out of the NIH in Maryland. And um, if you're metabolically flexible, and you are traveling, you can do this biohack, and I would encourage you to consider it. And the hack is simply that when you are flying at 35,000 feet, you are being exposed to ionizing radiation, and you are unquestionably causing DNA damage. It's just the way it happens, and that's why flight crews have about a 30 to 40% increased risk of cancer, well-documented. So how can you biohack this? Well, first of all, be metabolically flexible, mm -hmm. and then secondly, do not eat that day that you're flying. That's the yeah. fasting day, because when you're fasting, you're metabolically flexible, your ketones will go up. And what's the benefit of that? When you have high ketones, 
it, it does a number of things. It pretty much shuts off, it, 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 it radically improves your body's ability to nullify the damaging side effects of ionizing radiation. And it does it through uh, two primary mechanisms. Well, three, the ketones are uh, HDAC1 and 2 uh, histone deacetylase inhibitors and ac activates FOXO3A and increases SOD and catalase. Then they also increase NADPH, which is a source of electrons to recharge glutathione. And then finally, uh, they help create NAD+, which recharges PARP, poly-ADP ribose polymerase, which repairs the DNA damage. So simple hack, it doesn't cost you anything. <laughs> and you can radically no, improve your DNA when you're flying. No, no, it's interesting you say that because um, people ask me, how, you know, how often do I do I intermittently fast? And I say, well, not often. And they, but but then they'll go, but Mark, you, but you only eat lunch at like one thirty or two, and then you have dinner at seven or seven thirty. So you're fasting. I'm like, that's not fasting. Yeah, that's just how I eat. That's yeah, just how I eat. So that's just what I call a compressed eating one. But when I intermittently fast is when I fly. So I, I do exactly that. I just don't eat when I fly. First of all. Because the food sucks. It's so bad <laughs> that you can't even, you just can't. It's like, wow, uh, I have sunk so low if I'm eating this particular thing that they're serving on this plate. So that's that's the main reason. But but that is that is the only time I, I truly fast or don't eat or you know, skip multiple meals in a row is when I fly. Yeah, well, you have been doing your body a great service because, you know, especially if you fly a lot, you will damage your DNA. There's just no doubt about it. It's, it's equivalent to multiple x-rays yeah. so uh i want to get back to the the the, uh, the fitness because you're such a an expert in that and um just maybe point out what appears to be a bit of an incongruency in your in your sprints that you had this morning because you are every week playing ultimate frisbee frisbee yeah. and to yep. me that's a sprint workout yep. <laughs> right yep. so if you're doing yep. that once a week but you still you did the sprints today is that like an exception or you know you're yeah. gonna skip ultimate no. this weekend? no so here's what happened yeah. So we're doing this. We're doing this on a Tuesday. I play ultimate on a Sunday. Right. I didn't play. I didn't play Sunday because oh, okay. I right. was down. At, I was down at JJ's event. Okay. So I, I missed my game. And when I said I don't, I haven't. It's been a long time since I've been to the track. Remember, okay. I said that it's been like several right. six months since I've been to the track. I went to the track today because I didn't play uh, frisbee this weekend. So to your point. And to, and to clarify, and I'm glad you're looking for all the, you're digging at all these holes, Joe, you're trying to expose <laughs> my, my soft underbelly here. Um, because I because I needed to get a sprint in, and I had a friend going to the track today, um, who, by the way, I, I called him up to go paddling, and he said, I can't paddle with you because I'm going to the track. And I said, well, shit, I'm going, I'm going to go paddle first, and I'll get a great workout in, and then I'll meet him at the track, and I'll have, and as I said, that's like my perfect retirement day. Like one day, yeah. if I do retire, That'll be like no, the you're not going to retire. That's the end of it. <laughs> yeah. You're going to be deathbed if you're going to retire. Right. So, uh, but then I'm wondering too if you've ever, because with respect to biohacking, uh, you're familiar with Alberto Salazar. He was a contemporary of yours. You were running very good friend of mine. Very good friend of mine. Friend yeah. of yours. And as you know, he was the coach of the U.S. Olympic track team the last yep. Olympics. And uh, from my understanding, is he 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 spent one hundred twenty thousand dollars, purchased a Novathor red light bed and near infrared yeah. and all the athletes, all the Olympic at track athletes were on it and they got the most medals they did in any other Olympics is my understanding. And I'm just wondering yeah. if, if you're, if you're familiar with that, or if you talk to Alberto about it and, and, and what's your thoughts on PBM for exercise? Um, I haven't talked to Alberto about it. Um, I'm open to the suggestion. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, I do uh, a Juve light. I don't know if you know the Juve. Yeah, that's exactly. I've got one too. Yeah, I use them. Yeah, I use it yeah. every day. I love it. I love it. So those guys are. I think they're onto something. Um, I've got a NIR sauna, so I've got. Um, you know, I've, I I I take advantage you're, of you're now. You're doing too. it. You're doing it, no, man. I'm, I'm doing it. And and so I might say, well, you know, had I not been doing that, I would have run 35 and 37 seconds, <laughs> 200 today, instead of 32 plus. Um, and by the way, after today's uh, stop at the track, I'm like, geez, I got to go back to the track because maybe I can get it down to, you know, down to around 30 again. But that would just be that'd be too much to ask. Yeah. For, yeah. Uh, well, what, what, was, what was your best times for doing 200s when you were like? Yeah. So century, here's the thing. Yeah. So really last. Yeah. So here's the thing. Um, I was an endurance athlete and the, the longer the distance for mm -hmm. me, the better it was. 
because I didn't have a high VO2 max. My VO2 max was 67.5. Wow. I ran two, you, were, you were an elite athlete. You were an Olympic, you were, in, people don't know, you were in the Olympic trials, which is a badge of I honor. Qualified, I qualified for the Olympic trials in 1980, the year we didn't send a team. But but I ran two, I took, ran 218.01, uh, actually ran 216.37 in that race, Jeez. but then they, they re, rejiggered it. Uh, I ran 220, 220, 221, 222, 222, 225. I ran like a bunch of uh, sub 225 marathons. So I was, the longer the distance, the better I was, even though I only had a, a VO2 max of 67.5. Um, now, I've never broken 60 for a 400, but I was the guy who could go out the track and in a workout, I could run six of them in 65 if you gave me a two minute rest in between. So I had I had this ability to tap into my, my, my absolute highest VO2 max. So, you know, we talk about VO2 max, there's two aspects of performance. One is what is your VO2 max? And the other is at what level can you mm -hmm. consistently perform? At what percentage of your VO2 max can you perform? Because there are guys that have VO2 max of 80, but then can't perform for a long period of time uh, at that. They're, they're, they're limited to their sub-max potential. I raced at such a high level of my VO2 max that I'm very clear that I got every possible amount of speed out of my body that there was ever Max gonna be to get there, yeah. Yeah, now the only, people say, well, Mark, if you went to back and had it to do over again, knowing what you know now about, about ketosis and fat burning and all this other stuff, would you do it differently? And what would the, the, the effect be? Would you be any faster? I suspect I wouldn't be any faster. I suspect I would have greater longevity. I would, I would suspect I would have been, you know, been able to do it longer. And, and then one of the things that happened to me was by the time I entered triathlon and I went to do the Ironman in Hawaii, I'd already had a career as a marathoner. So I'd already had, I'd already hurt way too much for too, for too long for one person. And so I, I shifted over to triathlons and I did that for a couple of years. I finished fourth at Ironman in Hawaii in 1982. And, but I, I was a crappy swimmer. So I was a great runner. And even though I couldn't run anymore because of my, I got injured and I couldn't train at a level, that's why I became a, a triathlete. Um, and I became a great cyclist because it wasn't affecting my joints as much. My swimming was so bad that I just said, you know what, I'm not going to, unless I really want to work on my swimming, um, that's the end of my my endurance days. I'm not willing to hurt that much for that long anymore. And that's really what. what you know, uh, I think you might have been able to improve your performance if you did an interesting biohack, and that is using these ketone esters. Uh, I think the uh, the the non-racemic one, the D-ester. Yeah. Yeah, uh, stereoisomer. The, the literal, uh, the literal and figurative rocket fuel. Yes, jet fuel. That is correct. But if you take fifteen, I mean, there's a lot of endurance athletes, like uh, Tour de France oh, athletes, that are taking that regularly, and they're busting. Like almost every winning team is on this stuff, and they're taking like thirty. It's expensive. It's a dollar gram, and they're going to yeah. spend about a hundred dollars during a race. But the, you know, yeah. they're elite athletes. So they can no. What's it. interesting is, um, and then and then what we haven't seen yet, but I suspect would be the next level is none of those guys really have gone uh, lo truly low carb. They haven't really gone into a keto reset. They haven't really built right. the metabolism yet to burn fats. If they got to the point where they were, they spent six weeks off season in ketosis and developed that metabolic machinery and, and increased mitochondrial biogenesis and got, and got to the point where they could do more work burning more fat and then introduce the ketones and then offset the need for all those gels and all that crap carbo stuff now then you'd start to see a next level of performance i think yeah that's indeed so i got a personal question for you and your okay. training for sprinting what in your mind what is the most painful sprint to go is it the 200 is it the 400 is it the 800 from a mile what would you what was your you know, least favorite workout yeah i mean uh well in i i could talk about the old days in the old days yeah, the yeah. Least favorite, yeah. Um, the least, uh, 16 times 800 in 222 to 224. Wow. About that. Yeah. So that was, that was, so that was 800, uh, in, in, um, under, under 224 and then, um, and then walk, jog, uh, a quarter and then do another 800 and walk, jog a quarter and do another 16 times, yeah. 16 times. Yeah. Wow. Was, I always, I, for me, I thought the 400 was a little worse. Yeah, I mean, if just for a straight race, if you're going to try and you you, you want to meter and meet out the energy in, in yeah. what you think is an like even the longest race, sprint. 
It's like the longest sprint, you know, and people will tell you that. that the 400 people on steroids. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's 99.9% .9 glycolytic and you typically run out of that stuff after 20 seconds. So <laughs> <laughs> the, la the last yeah. one is just on motivation. The last step That's right. of that. That's right. So, uh, any, uh, so you, I'm, I'm just delighted to hear that you have a juve. Do you have the, uh, the combo one or the, uh, the, the, so I have the, the big one. Yeah, I have the, I, have the, I have the big one, and I lie it down on the floor and lay next to it uh, instead of standing in front of it. Oh, don't lay on it, though. No, no, God, no, no. I lean it against the wall okay. and then lay next to it. Yeah, yeah, no, no. <laughs> but is it the combo one? Uh, what do you mean the combo one? That has red and near infrared, or is it just near infrared? It's just near infrared. Oh, perfect. Yeah. So let me give you – I just finished uh, – paper, a review on PBM by Michael Hamblin, who's out of Harvard, probably the top expert in the world on it. Yep. And uh, his, because the energy density in that radiation is really important. So you want to max out about 30 joules. If you get a lot more than 30 joules, you actually get a negative side effect. So yep. with yep. the Jew, that is about five minutes yep. on each side with, with yep. just that one wavelength. Otherwise, yep. I wouldn't go more than five minutes on a side. Yeah. No, I don't. Okay, good. <sighs> <laughs> 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 well, that's good. Good. I'm glad we cleared that up. Yeah, yeah. I just want to make sure. So, have you had any other uh, encountered any other hacks lately? So, I know um, you're not so into hacks a lot, but you I'm know, not in, I'm not. Yeah, I don't. First of all, I don't even like the term. I know you don't. That's second of all, you and I talked about this. I'm I am the anti wearable tech person. I think the information that I get from wearables is worse than not having information at all. And sometimes. Know. You know, like have a have a piece a device tell me that I didn't sleep well last night when I thought I slept damn good, you know, uh, and or you know have an HRV thing tell me I'm ready to go out and and do the best workout I've ever done when in fact all it's picking up is my PVCs because I have a damaged heart from all of the yeah you can't of running I, you can't use yeah. it so you know uh, and then the Fitbit I mean the people that I know who strap that to their leg when they go do soul cycle, you know, or, uh, cause they can't not get their, their steps in. Well, you're um, right. Almost all the wearables are high in EMF. Yeah. That too. That too. So, um, you know, I, I just, I have to laugh at some of this stuff and because my, since day one with Mark Staley Apple, 12 and a half years ago, I'm like, I want to teach people how to be intuitive yeah. about their lifestyle choices. I want them to, it's basically how do you feel? How do you look, feel, and perform? But how do you feel? So when you wake up in the morning and you're going to do a workout, are you ready for that workout? Do you feel like doing that workout? Are you excited about that workout? If not, don't worry about it. You know, do you have enough energy when you work when you wake up in the morning? If you're not hungry, do you still have to eat? No. If you're not hungry, why are you going to eat in the first place? So yeah. a lot of this is just developing an intuitive sense that even if you eat the wrong thing, you you don't beat yourself up. You don't make yourself guilty. For having made an inappropriate choice in the in the moment, because that's part of that is self love and be and knowing that you're going to get back on track. And so I'm like I'm like trying to get take this high tech movement and swing it back to okay, use the information to to get you to identify when you are ready to do something or not ready to do something. Good example would be a heart rate monitor. You know, I trained with a heart rate. I was one of the first guys using a heart rate monitor in 1979. Right. Um, it was a cigarette. It was a thing with with actual leaves coming down to a cigarette pack that you weighed about you know, 10 pretty, pounds. Yeah. And it was great. It was great information. And but, you know, but but the, but the research hadn't been done to know where the different zones were and hadn't correlated with lactate with the buildup of lactate and all the other things that, that needed to be put into place for it to even be uh, a usable uh, device. Now, it's but after a, after a bunch of years of using one. It's like, okay, I know what my heart rate is at different levels. I don't need to – in fact, the only reason I ever used a heart rate monitor after the first couple of years was to keep me below, to keep me honest, to keep me below a certain level because I knew if I went above a certain level, I was in that no man's land, you know, that black hole of training. So yeah, it was – Getting back to that, you've, you have a sort of counterintuitive recommendation and approach to training, at least endurance training. and. Uh, I think you're you're using the maximum heart rate formula of 220 minus your age, and you're you're pretty much staying there during your cardio. Is that right? 180 minus your age. So here's oh, here's the difference. Sorry. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. No. Big, big no. mistake. Sorry. 
No, no, no. But but I mean, it's but but the 220 minus your age used to be your theoretical max heart rate. That was yeah. what the that was what the health field suggests would be your max heart rate. But but 180 minus your age gives you your maximum aerobic function. So what it means is that um, that's the heart rate at which enough oxygen is being put through your body to fuel fat burning and to not put you into uh, glycogen or, or or sugar burning, right? Mm -hmm. So it's interesting because a lot of people uh, who say, well, okay, 180 minus your age, let's see, I'm 40 years old. That means I have a max training heart rate of 140. But Mark, I can train at 160 and 165 all day long. I can run, I can run 545 miles or I can run six minute miles. Mm -hmm. And then when I do what you say, Mark, and I do, I train at 180 minus 40 or 140 as a max heart rate, I'm like doing nine and a half, 10 minute miles. I'm almost walking, Mark. That mm -hmm. can't be accurate. Mm -hmm. And my response is, it's entirely accurate. And here's the issue. You perform well as a sugar burner. You're a great sugar burner. And so when you are uh, training at 165, 170 heart rate, and you feel pretty good about it, you're great at burning sugar, but you suck at burning fat. And the <laughs> fact that you suck at burning fat is, is demonstrated by the fact that you can't do much work at one at 140 beats a minute and how mark allen became the mm -hmm. the premier iron man in the world because mafetone is the one who coached him how some of these other athletes who, who zach bitter and some of the long distance guys is they kept that that metric they kept that metric so they never they go for long periods of time never exceeding that heart rate but but that's their max heart rate and then they don't care how they don't use a, a speed or a miles per hour to dictate Mm -hmm. how fast they're going the they use a heart rate and over time what they find is they become more and more efficient at that heart rate so all of a sudden those nine and a half minute miles become eight and a half minute miles and then eight minute miles and then seven minute miles next thing you know this guy who's 40 years old complaining about how slow he's going if he's done it for several weeks is all goes all of a sudden going hey mark i'm running six minute miles at 140 beats a minute imagine what i can do when i get in a race and then i'm 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 throttling it up at 160, 165 beats a minute because we know at six minute miles at 140 beats a minute, we know based on how the how hard the heart is not working that he's burning fat because he he would not be able to supply that much uh, uh, oxygen to fuel that amount of work on sugar. So it's a it's a you have to understand the science, but when you do and you realize that as long as I'm willing to spend time in this zone, you become more and more efficient. And that is what endurance is all about. It's about how efficient that is you are. brilliant. Absolutely brilliant, yeah. Mark. Thank you yeah. for sharing that. Uh, yeah. And how long does it typically take for a, a pretty good athlete who's who's in the burnt in gl burning glucose instead of the fat at a very slow pace? How long does it take to make the transition for a Is it six, a few six, weeks, six, few six months? To, yeah, six, no, six to eight weeks. So okay. this is, but you know, a lot of these guys are into instant gratification, right? Yeah, yeah. And course. so, just, they're athletes, just, of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so let's take this prototypical avatar, this forty-year-old guy who's a who's a pretty good runner. Um, you know, he's he's going to be frustrated because you know that's two months out of his life that he could be racing and doing whatever he's doing. But but the problem is he's never going to get better. He's mm -hmm. he's he's already hit his potential in burning sugar, and unless you start to introduce fat at a much higher level he's never going to race faster so he's he sort of hit his peak and that's fine but you know how many people want to continue at their peak and and have no chance of getting better yeah. particularly those who are in the endurance field you know everybody wants to get better and better over time so yeah. um it's, it's an interesting yeah. it's, it's, true for endurance. it's not true for sprinting sports of course because that's Correct. where that, that is a glycolytic activity. Yeah. So, yeah. and are you still following this recommendation now? And in your case, keeping your maximum heart rate in cardio at about 115? Yeah. I mean, I don't. So, so, like on so the paddle my, for today? Yeah. So, perfect example. Again, um, the great thing about paddle boarding is the heart rate doesn't get up there that hard. So, you get a, you get a great full body workout, but because the turnover, because of the paddling, the turnover is so. Um, relatively slow to a bike pedal turnover or running mm -hmm. turnover. Uh, I could, I could race my heart if I wanted to, but I go, I went out for an hour, a full hour today of hard paddling. I suspect I kept my heart right around 115, 120, but I beat, I mean, I just didn't beat myself up, but I, you know, I mean, you know, I've got the serratus to show for the paddling, 
I've got the lats, <laughs> I've got the shoulder stabilization. Paddling, when you do it right, is the absolute best all full body workout there is. I'm, I'm 100% hit posterior deltoids too? Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Yep. If you do it right, and it's mostly, you know, in, in the shoulder realm, it's mostly stabilizer, but you're using lats because you're, you, you're, you're out, the paddle is out held, in, held out in front of you. Your arms are in a straight V and you almost don't even bend your arms in. You keep them locked out and then you do all the work by bending, dipping a little bit with your legs. So there's glutes, there's, there's hamstrings, there's quads, there's lower back, there's lats, there's serratus, and then you've stabilized your shoulder through that whole movement. Wow. Do I sound like a fan? Yeah, of course. Ultimate Frisbee and stand-up paddleboard. Paddle. So the, yeah. the, the question on the plate, though, what is easier to, to paddleboard in, the Atlantic or the Pacific? Wow. Well, so um, the Pacific uh, is, is more interesting for me. But I don't paddle in the Atlantic. I paddle in the Bay, which is the Atlantic. Oh, but I, okay. I paddle up at Indian Creek, and and that's really interesting because you're in above, you know, really expensive homes and expensive boats and around bridges and under and around. It's 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 a, a unique thing. And and then I see manatees instead of whales when I'm in the <laughs> inland waterways there. All right. Well, that's good. Any, anything else you'd like to add before we uh, sign off? Uh, no, I just, uh, you know, I want any of your uh, listeners or viewers who already don't, don't already know it, you know, Primal Kitchen Foods is my main company. We make uh, healthy salad dressings and mayonnaises. We just introduced a, uh, a completely uh, unsweetened and organic ketchup that is just taking the world by storm. It's, it's, again, it's like a game changer. Yeah. Yeah. And then Mark's Daily Apple, of course. Mark's Daily Apple is the blog for since 2006. The only older blog in, that I can think of is Joe Mercola's blog. <laughs> this guy's been writing for a long time. Yeah, 21 uh, years this year. So, good man, you're you're a groundbreaker and a pioneer, Joe. <laughs> now there are a few others out there. Believe me, I I, I I've known them, uh, but uh, not popular ones. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for everything you're doing, Mark. I uh, really appreciate all the wisdom you've been kind enough to share and some really powerful tips there. Uh, you know, that uh, I wasn't going to go there, but it occurred to me that we should explore that. I'm glad we did because I've heard you go over this a few times, but it really sunk in now, and especially your explanation for it and, and discerning the different types of pathways that you're optimizing. And yeah. you really have to optimize, well, you don't have to, but if you want to maximize your performance, especially yeah. in long-term endurance cardio, I mean, it's just crazy not to follow that recommendation. Simple recommendation, 180 minus your age. Yeah. Cool. All right. Thanks for having me, Joe. Well, Good to yeah, see you. Yeah, and I'll hope to see you soon.